Kidnappings are increasing in the North Caucasus. First, a UN worker in Chechnya, then a team from ICRC in Georgia, and now, on the 12th of August 2002, MSF Switzerland's coordinator in Dagestan, Arjon Erkel. The Swiss section puts out two press releases announcing his kidnapping and the suspension of all MSF activities in the North Caucasus. The kidnapping occurred in Mahachikala around 10pm. On his way home, the MSF car was intercepted by a local vehicle with three men on board, two of them being armed, and Ayan was abducted and pushed into another car. MSF is extremely concerned about this incident and demands the immediate release of Ayan in good condition. Unfortunately, the kidnapping doesn't come as a huge surprise. The risk of hostage-taking has been going up for months. Well, at the time, all the warning lights were flashing. We were waiting for something bad to happen. Uh, there had been already Nina Davidovich who was kidnapped, and we could feel the pressure. After the initial demands for their employees' release, MSF stops talking to the media about the case for fear of endangering Aryan or their other operations in the region. In the days following Aryan Erkel's kidnapping, a crisis cell is set up at MSF Switzerland to handle his case. The section's operations director travels to Dagestan to do some digging into what happened in the days beforehand. As with Kenny Gluck's kidnapping last year, there's speculation as to who has taken Aryan Erkel and why. In October, Chechen rebels hold 700 people hostage in the Dubrovka Theatre in Moscow. Russian Federation special forces use gas to try and end the kidnapping after three days, but more than 100 people die and the rest are taken to local hospitals which are totally overwhelmed and unprepared to receive patients suffering from this type of gas poisoning. Two MSF doctors do what they can to help on the ground and witness the ineffectiveness of the Russian authorities in helping the victims. But there's reluctance from some in MSF who worry that even the organisation's presence helping in the crisis might impact on Aryan Erkel's case. And so MSF decides not to make a public statement about what the team sees that day. Gabriel Trujillo is MSF France's coordinator for the North Caucasus and is in Moscow at the time of the siege. Our two doctors went to the hospitals and witnessed the scale of the disaster. Several of the Russian doctors had fallen into coma. There weren't enough respirators, so they had to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and they had poisoned themselves. People had arrived more or less unclothed, and there were no sheets, no blankets, no toilet paper, no water, no soap, not to mention medicine. It was a bit apocalyptic. We were lucky to get our two doctors into the hospital to lend a hand. After that, the administration was quick to close all doors. There were people in MSF sections that were against our doctors being involved in the theatre siege business because of Ariane Erika kidnapping. They said it had nothing to do with us, that we shouldn't get involved. Our doctors went ahead anyway, and perhaps we could have done more. With still no word on their colleagues' health or whereabouts, every move can potentially hamper the chances of Arjan Erkel being found alive. Once more, MSF is questioning whether the organisation should speak out in the media to create visibility and some protection for the MSF staff member who's been taken hostage. Or should MSF remain as discreet as possible so as to avoid a rise in their colleagues' so-called market value? 
Similarly, should MSF take active steps to secure the hostages' release by publicly pointing out a government's responsibilities, negligence or even complicity when a kidnapping occurs on its soil? Or should it not enter into these conversations to avoid the potential for a government to dig in its heels? Lastly, should the organisation continue to publicly denounce the violence inflicted on people in the region at the risk of radicalising those responsible for the kidnapping and place the hostage's life in danger? This is Speaking Out, War Crimes and the Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994-2004, a podcast by MSF. I'm Nick Owen. Episode 9 speaking out in a time of kidnapping. Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. With still no news about Aryan Urkel a month after the kidnapping, MSF announces it's restarting programmes in Ingushetia to help the thousands of refugees in desperate need there. In November, MSF puts out another press release to mark 100 days since Aryan's abduction. The cautious approach to speaking out in the media is designed to not jeopardise his release. However, it doesn't seem to be getting the team very far either. MSF France's former coordinator in the Caucasus, Steve Cornish, is made the Swiss section's representative in Russia because of his role in the search for Kenny Gluck when he was taken hostage last year. As time ticks on, many expect the worst. So for three months, uh, we were rather paralysed. And then I think because there had been no sign of life, people began imagining that Aryan uh, might have been dead. At first, we were quite frightened of saying anything at all, but that faded after a while. The realisation came when everyone agreed there was no other option than to speak out. With no signs of life, MSF decides to change its strategy and raise the visibility of the kidnapping in the media, hoping to increase pressure on the Russian authorities. The Urkel crisis cell draws up a communication plan and the first stage starts in early 2003. On a cold February day in Moscow, the president of MSF International, Morten Rostrup, holds a press conference with Aryon's father and brother and the Dutch ambassador to Russia. Aryon's family and the Dutch embassy present the kidnapping as a purely criminal act, while MSF highlights the political dimension and a lack of results on the part of Russian and Dagestan authorities. Rafa Villa San Juan is MSF International General Secretary. Morton's press conference marked the start of a much more political phase in our communication strategy. In fact, it caused considerable tension inside the organization. After six months without any news, we were beginning to understand that the Russian government wasn't at all put out by this kidnapping. We couldn't carry on like that. That's when the communication strategy split. Two ideas emerged. On the one hand, the idea that we should continue being very diplomatic with the Russian government. And then the other one, the idea that whoever the kidnappers were, the Russian government had a responsibility and more to the point, the ability to get him released. And so that's where we should apply pressure. This is where the big divide between MSF Holland and the rest of the movement involved occurred. My opinion was, and it is still, that communication doesn't kill at all. In fact, it makes people face up to their responsibilities. 
Three weeks later, on Aryan Urkel's birthday, MSF launches a worldwide petition demanding that the Russian and Dagestan presidents do everything in their power to secure the hostages' release. The petition was meant to be launched at the press conference in February, but the Dutch Foreign Affairs Minister asked for it to be postponed, fearing it may be seen as overly aggressive towards the Russian authorities. It's around this time that tensions between the various groups involved in trying to secure Aryan's release, namely his family, MSF and the Dutch government, start to increase, as this Dutch government report from a meeting between the three parties shows. Ministry of Foreign Affairs repeats once more its position that politicised public declarations by MSF, in which the Russian authorities are accused indirectly or explicitly of non-cooperation or obstruction in solving the case, or even complicity in it, can only be counterproductive. The ministry reminds those present that this fear was one of the main reasons why it could not support the petition on Aryan's behalf. Our common goal is to assure a safe release of Aryan, and such statements could undermine our joint efforts in achieving this aim. Ministry of Foreign Affairs warns that MSF is reducing its chances of being listened to by the Russian authorities, not to mention of being received at a high level. Aryan Urkel's family say they're pleased with the petition campaign, but ask MSF not to raise the pressure or increase irritation on the Russian side. They stress that they want to be thoroughly consulted before MSF plans to increase pressure, not after. In late March 2003, representatives of the Dutch Foreign Ministry pass on proof to MSF and the Urkel family that Aryan is still alive. The proof is photos of the hostage holding a recent newspaper and letters for his family and MSF. There's relief, but unfortunately this doesn't bring them any closer to securing Aryan's release. Not long after, MSF hands over the petition with nearly 340,000 signatures to Russian embassies around the world. The UN aid worker, Nina Davidovich, who was kidnapped just before Aryan and released recently, speaks at MSF's press conference together with Aryan's father. They appeal for Aryan to be released. Rafa Villa San Juan again. I went to Moscow with Aryan's father to hand over the petition signatories and to hold the press conference. He had gone back to Holland the previous day to consult the Dutch government at its request and had then returned to Moscow. He asked me what I was going to say. My feeling was that we needed to be strong and stand up to the Russians. He told me that I would not leave the room with my document if that was the attitude I was going to adopt. And there, in the space of a brief of an hour, I understood what MSF Holland was experiencing. They were under really pressure from the Dutch public opinion, which was dominated by the family and the government. The family uh, wanted to remain on satisfactory terms with the Russian government, whereas our view was that the best way forward was to make the Russian government accept the responsibility. I told Arian's father that I was defending not only his son, but also the other 3,000 people expatriated that MSF had in the field, and that I needed to speak in these terms because I was responsible for the entire MSF movement. But the family did not want to hear this. In fact, I had received calls from people in MSF in Somalia and MSF Colombia asking me what were we doing because they were afraid of being kidnapped. They were afraid because if we paid a ransom, even without saying anything, then the same thing would happen in Somalia or elsewhere. In public, Aryan's father praises the strong coordination between MSF and the Dutch Minister for Foreign Affairs. In private, he criticises MSF's Secretary-General for highlighting the Russian authorities' lack of commitment to the investigation. 
Meanwhile, throughout 2003, MSF continues to work in the North Caucasus, but the living conditions for refugees in the camps is getting worse and worse. In Ingushetia, it's increasingly difficult to deliver aid and the authorities are still pressuring the refugees to return home. Many international staff want to speak out, while some of the Caucasus staff aren't as keen as they worry about the consequences. At each anniversary or new proof of life in the Urkel case, MSF puts out a press release and each time the tensions between the interested parties increases. A year after Aryon's kidnapping in the Dagestan capital, MSF launches a media campaign openly criticising the Russian investigators' ineffective search. It's a scandal that after one year, our colleague Aryon Urkel is still detained, says international president of MSF, Morten Rostrup, in a press release. He continues, This can only be attributed to the mishandling of the investigation and a lack of commitment by Russian authorities. The presence of two intelligence agents at the scene of the abduction and the fact that they stood by while Aryan was kidnapped should surely increase their motivation to resolve this case. However, to our dismay, the investigation was halted in November 2002 and only reopened in May 2003. We were not told of this, but instead authorities kept assuring us they were doing everything to secure Aryan's release. The Dutch Foreign Affairs Ministry breaks off all contact with MSF for several weeks after this release. Internally, there's disagreement as well. Steve Cornish at MSF Switzerland is on leave when the campaign is launched and is unhappy about it. He's been following a lead and feels the new campaign means it's now dried up. However, most of MSF is behind the organisation's decision to speak out. MSF Switzerland's Director of Operations words have been voiced up. For each communication operation, there were discussions among the sections. It had been decided at international level that our section had the right of veto, which meant that we could veto communications if we deemed them dangerous or counterproductive in regard to current activities or negotiations. It was well respected. As the year rolls around to 2004, more leads on Ion's whereabouts start to emerge. However, in February, after several weeks of almost total silence, the failure of several leads and worrying rumours circulating about Aryan's health, the Urkel Crisis Unit and the International Follow-Up Committee relaunches an action plan for diplomacy and public communication. But there are intense debates and differences of opinion as to whether now is a good time for MSF to publicly pressure the Russian authorities. MSF Switzerland's Director of Operations words have been voiced up. Some people had said they saw a video of Ayan looking unwell and being abused. It's clear that this type of information had upset us quite a bit. We were trying to get this video, which we had never received. At that point, supported mainly by Jean-Hervé Bradol and Rafa Vila San Juan, some of us started to say that we needed to be more aggressive, that it wasn't enough to just ask questions. There was a lot of resistance among all the other players, some pretty stormy meetings took place at international level, including a major discussion with all the executive directors and the international office to determine our communication strategy. Jean Hervé and Kenny Gluck got into a big shouting match, but finally the decision was made to proceed. In the end, they decide to accuse the Russian authorities publicly, but without naming any names. 
On the 18-month anniversary of Arjon Urkel's abduction, MSF puts out a press release. MSF believes that the absence of any progress in the case is a clear indication that a firmer political commitment is needed by the Russian federal and local authorities to ensure the safe release of Arjon. The Russian authorities have repeatedly expressed their commitment to solve this case, but so far this has yielded no concrete results. The recent arrest of the investigator in charge of Ion's case only further erodes MSF's confidence in the investigation. Therefore, we urge the Russian authorities to live up to their commitment and secure Ion's safe release, said Dr. Rowan Gillies, MSF International Council President. In late February, the Urkel family's lawyer threatens MSF with legal action if it doesn't halt the communications campaign. The family feels that all this media activity is hampering Arjon's release. On the 4th of March, MSF Switzerland's general director sends a letter to Arjon's father, Dick Urkel. In it, he explains that MSF understands Dick Urkel's reservations, but it still intends to step up the pressure to highlight the fact that the Russian and Dutch authorities aren't doing everything they can to secure his son's release. However, MSF Switzerland's general director doesn't make it clear what sort of statements MSF would be issuing in the following days. Dr. Jean-Hervé Bradol from MSF France. His words have been voiced up. I'd agreed to take this public stand on one condition, that the family be truthfully informed beforehand of what we intended to do. And it never occurred to me, once I had written the draft, that the letter would be so bad and that the only condition I stipulated would not be respected. When I saw the contents of the letter that was finally sent, I was furious. I understood why the family was so indignant. The letter gave them no idea of the type of public statements that were to follow. In trying to keep the Dutch happy, we created confusion. MSF Switzerland's Director of Operations. Again, his words have been voiced up. We had a major problem with the family. They were dead set against all forms of communications. They were influenced by the Dutch government, which wanted to use diplomatic channels and was hostile to all communication. When we dared speak up a little, Arjen's father threatened to take us to court if his son died. For us, it was an important factor to be taken into consideration. We could not go against the family's wishes and say anything and everything. From the outset, people with experience in managing kidnappings told us that it was crucial to have the family on our side, but we never managed it. From March 2004 onwards, a more offensive strategy is launched, based on information from private investigators and a journalist from an independent Russian weekly paper. In an interview with the French newspaper Le Monde, MSF France's president, Jean-Hervé Bradol, makes even more specific accusations and now points to the involvement of the Russian secret services. The head of the group that detains Ayan is a member of the Dagestan Duma parliament, and his boss is a member of the Federal Duma in Moscow, assures Jean-Hervé Bradol. The president of MSF says he holds this information from various sources, including from members of the forces, military, FSB, ex-KGB, police, local and federal, and has done so for several months already. Although this information has been transmitted to Dutch, French, European and United Nations diplomats, it has not enabled progress towards the liberation of Arjen Erkel. Diplomats recognise this established fact in their conversations with us, but there is a public taboo. One cannot upset Russia. You will end up putting your colleague's life in danger if you keep on making noise. 
is what we are being told in the embassies, comments Dr. Bradol. Although silent until now, the humanitarian organisation has decided to lift the taboo. The investigation on the kidnapping of Arjan Erkel is officially at standstill. MSF Switzerland's Director of Operations. His words have been voiced up. Jean Hervé's interview with Le Monde was not an isolated initiative. In early January, we decided to step up pressure in the media, no longer restricting ourselves to press releases, but writing and giving interviews to journalists which would have an impact on the various Russian and European papers. The Le Monde interview is part of this increasing public activity. We did not delude ourselves. If we wanted to talk about Chechnya, it had to be in France, because at least there would be a small audience due to the presence of a fairly large Chechen community. But it had been forgotten everywhere else in Europe. There are some serious disagreements internally at MSF. In an email to communications directors at the other sections and the MSF Switzerland Urkel crisis cell, the MSF Holland communications officer writes, MSF Holland agrees with MSF Belgium that Jean Hervé's statements are very risky for our operations in the field and Arjan's case. Our team got restrictions on travelling today. We again want to point out that we want to tone Jean Hervé's statements down. This could be a possible Q&A. Isn't it dangerous what MSF is doing? The comments of the president of MSF France have come out too strong in Le Monde. MSF regrets this. MSF can and will not accuse anyone. There still hasn't been any direct contact with the kidnappers. We do not know who is holding him. What was written in Le Monde reflects previously expressed speculations by other analysts, which were already published in various media months ago. Uh, MSF cannot confirm this or any other scenario. The reports are, however, very worrying, while at the same time no clarity has been given by the Russian investigation authorities. Just to illustrate, Moscow correspondents are phoning me up, stunned by the statements by MSF. FYI, in Russia, the headline is, MSF accuses Russian authorities of kidnapping its aid worker, and asking us if we realise how dangerous this game we are playing is, and how are we going to repair this damage? MSF France's general director writes to his counterparts in the other sections. I'm really upset to see individuals and specifically communication representatives not doing what was decided at XCOM level. That is the group of general directors of MSF sections, or by the crisis cell dealing with this terrible affair. I find unacceptable the males and attitude explaining that we should change from the current strategy decided by Geneva, and, if I'm right, supported by XCOM, that the statement of one MSF president is not an MSF position and that journalists, in a proactive way, should be requested to stop communicating on Ayan case. The next day, Arjan's father criticises the MSF campaign in an interview with the Dutch radio station Radio 1. I do wonder whether it contributes to the safety of people in the field that that kind of information is shared, he says. MSF Holland president writes to her French counterpart. In terms of responding to the media, we do realise that MSF Holland has to respond to the public story of a troubled relationship between Arjan's family and MSF. A situation where media and family irresponsibly exploit details, such as MSF is not prepared to send medicines to Arjan. This on top of the accusations we're ignoring the family's request for silence, and the danger, they believe, which comes from our accusations. I do not have to explain to you that immediately donors started to call and cancel their funding commitments. It definitely does not help to mobilise the Dutch politicians. 
MSF Holland is having difficulty supporting MSF's stance publicly. Both Ion's family and Dutch civil society back the Dutch government's use of silent diplomacy. The Dutch authorities say that MSF is making their attempts at silent diplomacy more difficult. Some parties think that since MSF has no proof to support their accusations, it should refrain from broadcasting them. And there are other more structural problems too. MSF Holland Executive Director, Austin Davis. So the primary problem was you had this guy, Arjen Erkel, who was a Dutch national. He was employed as a coordinator by the Swiss section. And so the Swiss had the managerial authority on the case. But obviously, the real interest, the blow-up, was in Holland. So whilst MSF Holland was trying to keep this an international humanitarian story, focusing on the people of Chechnya who were undergoing you know, one of the great insults, one of the great onslaughts in, in modern history, um, that's not what the Dutch journalists were there for. They were there for the, the human drama story of Arjen Erkel. And so what you have in any kidnapping case, the family is very important. And we spend a lot of time with the family. So it was MSF Holland that was principally dealing with the family at the beginning. And then uh, the Swiss were principally dealing with, with the Dutch authorities. And the Dutch authorities were running a, a, a quiet diplomacy track. They wouldn't tell us much about it. They didn't have much trust for MSF. Well, I think, to be fair, actually, the Dutch government became increasingly irritated uh, by MSF and MSF increasingly lost faith in the efforts being made by the Dutch government. And the Dutch government managed to persuade the, the Dutch family that, that they were looking after their interests uh, much better than the MSF section. And so the Dutch family refused to talk to the MSF Holland uh, people that was their, their bridge and said, you, you guys aren't making the decision anyway. We want to speak to the Swiss. And of course, the Swiss were miles away and they didn't have the time and the, the, the proximity to be able to manage the family. So the whole thing was going haywire in Holland. Austin does speak a bit of Dutch, but as he puts it, he is not Dutch by culture. In addition, many of those at the top of MSF Holland do not speak Dutch. I think three out of five of the senior management people were non-Dutch as well. And in this case, we were the ones interfacing with the international movement who were taking a very, an increasingly radical stance opposing the Dutch government and yet not facing the consequences of the backlash at home. And so you would get us coming back from these international fora where we had argued for a position and lost and then coming back and having to defend a position that we didn't quite believe in ourselves to a very emotional uh, office and a very emotional board and uh, it was very very difficult and I think the attitude of the Dutch government was inexplicably aggressive I, I just don't know why one of MSF Holland's operations directors in charge of programmes in the North Caucasus. His words have been voiced up. From the moment the crisis cell was set up, all responsibility for managing Orion's kidnapping was taken off me. In my opinion, it was a very good idea to have two different teams, but their separation was a bit too drastic in this case. 
Not enough was made of the field team's knowledge. External communication was seen as a potential risk for managing the kidnapping, so it was also managed by a special team, not by me. And once MSF Switzerland's crisis cell took over, MSF Holland left them to it and didn't stage any internal discussions on the affair. Only board and management team members followed what was happening. MSF Holland's crisis cell managed relations with the family, protecting it by adopting a very conservative approach, minimising risks. So the tensions within the section were partly due to cultural reasons, as the Dutch, and in this particular case, the Dutch members of headquarters staff, weren't used to being at loggerheads with their governments. But they were also due to structural issues. The way MSF Holland organised itself, which cut off all contacts between the small, specialised group following the kidnapping and the rest of headquarters. Arjan's kidnapping is constantly in the Dutch media, but journalists are mainly focusing on the disagreement between the family and government on one side and MSF on the other. By mid-March, tensions increase further when the Urkel family's lawyer announces that the family would hold MSF responsible for anything that might happen to Arjon or any other volunteer in the field if they don't cancel their press conference due that day. They ask MSF to hand over the strategic, operational and media management of the affair to professionals. MSF Switzerland's Director of Operations. His words have been voiced up. At that point, the family was saying that we were killing Arjen and was trying to stop us from making public pronouncements. But I almost felt like the opposite was true, that we were trying to increase public campaigning in order to make progress. We weren't going to last six months. The situation was bound to blow up. You could see how everyone was on edge throughout the MSF movement. It was all very precarious. The situation is getting more dangerous on the ground as well. MSF Switzerland's Director of Operations again. During one of my trips to Moscow, a car tried to drive us off the motorway. It was like a film. It slowed down in front of us, moved behind us and bumped us. Our driver ended up driving into the undergrowth to get away from it. On top of the iron problem, it felt like we were under pressure and it was becoming seriously unpleasant and it was getting difficult to point the finger at the FSB. We had no proof and I could feel our teams and I were increasingly unsafe. On the 25th of March, relations break down completely between MSF Switzerland and the Dutch government. The Dutch claim the organisation's public statements have upset the Russian authorities and brought all the efforts to secure Arjan's freedom to a standstill. They say they won't give MSF any more information on the investigation's progress. The next day, the Urkel family's lawyer sends a new letter to MSF Switzerland threatening legal action and asking MSF to renounce its role coordinating the crisis resolution process. On the 8th of April 2004, MSF Switzerland's Urkel crisis cell sends out a message to the MSF communications network. Something's in the pipeline. We just received information that warrants a temporary, i.e. tactical suspension of all MSF communications on the case of Arjon Urkel from now, April 8th, until April 16th, 2004 latest. In other words, in order not to disturb new and imminent operational developments, we kindly request you to switch on silent mode concerning the case of Arjon Urkel. You will receive an update as soon as possible and according to circumstances, but latest on Friday, April 16th. Until then, Please bear with us. 
During the night of the 10th of April, Aryon Urkel is driven for several hours in the boot of a car before being released into the FSB's headquarters in Mahachakala, the Dagestan capital. MSF Switzerland's representative in Moscow, Steve Cornish, gets a phone call from the Dutch ambassador telling him the news at two in the morning. The Urkel crisis cell emails colleagues again. MSF received a phone call from an organisation called the Veterans of Foreign Intelligence at five this morning, Moscow time, to say that Aion was free. Aion's family was immediately informed. Steve Cornish, together with an MSF doctor from MSF Belgium in Moscow and the second secretary of the Dutch embassy, immediately flew to Mahichikala in Dagestan to meet Aion. It was immediately assessed that there was not a need to medically evacuate Aion. Indeed, he had lost a lot of weight and will undergo a detailed medical examination in the coming days. However, he was walking and talking and happy as hell to be free. Shortly before Aryan departed for Moscow, the Interior Ministry of Dagestan made a statement claiming that Aryan had been freed in a special forces operation. While the world's media reports every last detail of Aryan's abduction and liberation, MSF holds off on making an official statement until discussions between the directors about the wider humanitarian situation have taken place. MSF issues a press release four days later that sets Aryan's abduction in the broader context of the violence in the North Caucasus. The Moscow Times reports, The freeing of kidnapped Dutch aid worker Aryan Erkel had more to do with a retired Soviet-era spy and his former colleagues than with the Russian authorities, Médecins Sans Frontières said Wednesday. The release early Sunday of Erkel, after 20 months in captivity, was secured thanks largely to the efforts of the Veterans of Foreign Intelligence, an association of former Russian security service agents hired to help secure his freedom, said Stephen Cornish, who heads the medical charity's Moscow crisis team. MSF officials turned to the veterans after becoming increasingly frustrated at what they saw as inaction and indifference on the part of Russian security services. Corruption? a lack of desire to solve the case, and competition between law enforcement bodies prevented an earlier release for Urkel, MSF's mission head in Dagestan, Cornish, said. Colleagues in the North Caucasus and at headquarters around the world are relieved that Aryan Urkel has been released. Throughout the ups and downs of the nearly two years he was held hostage, MSF has backed up each instance of speaking out publicly with regular meetings held at diplomatic level. Be it raising a voice on the situation in Chechnya, the refugees' fate or the kidnapping of volunteers, MSF aimed to raise the awareness of policymakers who have an influence with the warring parties. MSF used every official Russian visit to Europe or North America and every international summit where the Russian Federation was taking part as an opportunity to question the various parties publicly. MSF also addressed the Council of Europe three times on the situation in Chechnya and the refugees' fate, as well as being heard by the United Nations Human Rights Commission in April 2002. Each time, a press release detailed what had happened in Chechnya and the North Caucasus and spoke out for the welfare of the people there. As the authorities continue to put pressure on displaced Chechens in Ingushetia and forced repatriations carry on until most of the camps in Ingushetia are empty, MSF keeps publicly condemning the fate of these displaced persons on the basis of medical data and personal accounts. After 10 years of warfare and so-called normalisation through terror, 
those at MSF reflect on what the organisations learned from these times in the North Caucasus. One of MSF Holland's directors of operations in charge of programmes in the North Caucasus. Their words have been voiced up. We all had images of the first Chechen war in mind, i.e. wide-scale bombing, brutal activity conducted by an ultra-violent army that violated the Geneva Conventions. In 2000-2001, military operations dropped off significantly and things changed from a military situation to selective political repression conducted by a puppet government with the secret services, etc. It was more about violations of human rights than humanitarian law, far more about individual disappearances and torture than tanks bombing a village. It was much harder to identify occasions to speak out. But we still made a lot of noise to denounce the so-called normalisation message that Moscow insisted upon. We often said, no, things aren't normalised at all. And then the Russians provided us with other occasions, such as forced displacements. We said to ourselves, OK, generally speaking, it's a lost cause. But there's still the odd battle we should be fighting by speaking out. To start with, there's hanging on to international NGO presence and space in this context, and continuing assistance to the Chechens. If we'd wanted to speak out more, we'd have needed a greater international staff presence. Without international staff in the field, it wasn't just a lack of first-hand information that posed a problem. It's implicit in MSF's culture that if we don't have someone who's seen things for themselves and then talks about it once they're back at the capital office or headquarters, nothing happens. For the many MSF Caucasus staff in the region, these two wars dramatically changed their view of humanitarian organisations operating there, as this staff member recounts. Their words have been voiced up. During the first war, as well as at the end of 1999 and in 2000-2001, the population's perception of international organisations was shaped by how Europe and Europeans were perceived in general. If a settlement or village was surrounded, shelled and bombed, people had this feeling that if an international organisation was to appear in the area, they would somehow be protected. The thought was along the lines of, this will be known in Europe, and this impunity, the arbitrariness and such, will be stopped. They were putting a lot of hope in these organisations. But in 2004 and five. This illusion has gone away, and now the attitude of the population towards the international humanitarian organisations is different. Still, this advocacy is necessary, in my view. The MSF deputy legal advisor adds their thoughts, also voiced up. I believe Chechnya is a real example of responsibility-driven political communication and lobbying. In other words, we always hoped that by communicating and doing advocacy work, we were going to influence certain things, such as the violence and the violations of international humanitarian law, the behaviour of justice ministries and the international community, or things at an operations level, by defending a working space on the ground. But what we did was really done out of a sense of responsibility. We knew perfectly well that with the power Russia has, nothing would change that it had carte blanche to quash the Chechen rebellion and send a significant proportion of the Chechen population off into oblivion. But that didn't make us give up. We were well aware we wouldn't be able to change all that. 
but we considered it our responsibility to try. This MSF Speaking Out podcast is based on an original MSF case study called War Crimes and Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994-2004. It's written by Lawrence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out case study series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is written, produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Interviews are recorded by Lucy Dearlove. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, and Rebecca Golden Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. Extracts are read by Didi Bellos and Matthew Wade. The voiceovers are by Michael Barrett, Christopher Bockman, Lucy Dearlove, Mark Fairclough, Kevin Halliwell, Clive Hayward, Chris Kellum, Andrea Rangecroft, Alex Vincent, and Richard Westgate. The music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Samantha Bolton, Dr. Eric Comte, Steve Cornish, Austin Davis, Dr. Alain DeVoe, Jean-Christophe Dolle, Anne Fouchard, Dr. Eric Gomer, Graziella Godin, Michiel Hoffman, Rafa Villa San Juan, Gabrielle Trujillo, Dr. Bridget Vasset. To read the full case study and discover others, please go to our website, msf.org speakingout. Thanks for listening.